Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter somewhat friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, sometimes not so much, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spouting off about burnout in the tech world. Let's get in to episode 20. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is the Donatello of our crew, Nate. We're missing Raphael, Matt, but <laughs> we get Bill, the Leonardo of his crew at work. How's it going, guys? Great. Wonderful. I think maybe Bill might be more of a Donatello than me because he does some way cooler things as far as software is concerned. Well, I do like to walk around with a big stick. So I guess Donatello <laughs> is perfectly appropriate for me. <sighs> yeah. You're the leader of your crew at work. You're directing where different techs go. I thought it'd be a pretty good fit for you as far as the Ninja Turtles. Oh, I thought it was a perfect tie-in considering Matt's burned out from his 24-hour live stream. Yeah, I know. Gosh dang him. I can't believe he's not showing up so we can talk about his live stream. He did have to cut it short, which was an absolute bummer. He made it 21 hours, raised $1,000. But because he had to leave early, he couldn't do the full 24 hours. He's playing Among Us. Anyway, yay! I'm so excited. Yay, finally. We raised some great money for a charity, and Nate and I get our biggest wish, which is Matt playing Among Us. That's really the only reason I donated to his stream. I mean, yes, it's a good cause, and I appreciate what he's doing, but really, I just want him to play Among Us. It's not that I want him to suffer because it's not suffering. It is a fantastic game that's lots of fun and loads of laughs. And I just don't understand why he has such an aversion to fun. I mean, you think for a gaming guy, he wouldn't have an aversion (laughs) to fun, right? Well, apparently just our kind of fun. Speaking of fun, your Steam Deck arrived. Yes, it did. How is it? You've got it in hand. Right now I don't have it in hand because if I did, then I wouldn't be paying attention. And then you would be upset with me again. And then, you know, it wouldn't work out. So I did get the Steam Deck last week, Thursday is when I got it. I believe it was Thursday. Or is it Wednesday? Anyway, last week I got it. I have to say right out of the gate, I love the packaging They did a really good job on just how efficient it is and how they did the whole like unpacking experience for it. The fit and finish of the Steam Deck is basically perfect. Like, I don't know what they could have done better. It's a phenomenal piece of hardware. I love having it in my hand. It's a good weight. It works well with the size of my hand. Hands, I should say, because I have two of them. Everything about it is great. The software that they put on there for the user interface, phenomenal job. It's still early days for it, and I was expecting it to be buggy, and it's not. They did a great job there. I have a question. Sure. Is it still running SteamOS, or did you blow it out and put OpenSUSE on there? That is a good question. I'll tell you that I am leaving SteamOS on there for a few reasons. So they've done some serious tooling in the interface so that all the different buttons work to do different functions. And until I know for sure that putting OpenSUSE on there, I can transfer all of those user interface experience bits... I don't want to break it, if that makes any sense. What I'll probably end up doing is getting another NVMe, you know, SSD, whatever they're called, whatever the kids call them these days, and put that in there. I got to get a certain one that has low RF or something like that. And then I'll do that because at this point, I don't know that the on-screen keyboard is going to work like it does. So like right now, when I go to the desktop, which is, you know, KDE Plasma, Woo-hoo! 
when I use it, I can pop on an on-screen keyboard by holding down the Steam button and then hitting the B on the gamepad. It brings up an on-screen keyboard, which I don't have one of those in Plasma now, so I don't know where that's coming from or the packages for that. I'm sure it's all out there and I can find it. But before I jump into putting the Geeko operating system OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, I want to make sure that I can put all the little bits and bobs that make it a good experience. Are you saying that Valve did a good job with Arch? I'm going to say Valve did a great job. I won't validate the last part. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, that was probably way too painful. I get what you're talking about from that UI, because if you're into any kind of old school retro gaming with ROMs and things like that, you have an appreciation for nice interface that comes with something like RetroArch, and it's Kind of nice to think that Valve really put the time and effort into making a similar easy-to-use experience with the Steam Deck. I'm really happy that you're liking it so far. They didn't just put the time and effort to make a nice interface. They put the time and effort to make a fantastic interface. I kid you not. I'm not exaggerating at all when I say it is a great experience. I like it better than the Switch. I like it better than anything Sony has kicked out. And I'm not easy to please about interfaces. Like if you lock me into an interface, 10 times out of 10, I'm just not going to like it except this one instance. This is like the exception, not the rule. Valve did something very special here, and I'm very impressed. I'm thoroughly impressed. Now, it's not a perfect experience. It far exceeds my expectations for a gaming console. So what you're saying is if it ran OpenSUSE, then it would be a perfect experience. Basically, yeah. So I did cheat a little bit, and I did download the OpenSUSE Breeze Dark theme that I put together and published. So I very easily just looked for that theme on the KD Looks, the interface there, installed the theme. So I do have the little Geeko circle symbol that you would have on OpenSUSE, but on my Steam Deck. So it, it is cheating a little bit, and it's kind of a half measure or maybe a quarter measure to get me to where I want, but you know, it's pretty good. Makes me happy anyway. Now I will say, Discover, it works. It doesn't crash. I don't know who put the crash with a K in the show notes, Bill, but... <laughs> I'm just blaming you. I don't know if it's true, but I'm just blaming you. Actually, it is totally true. I watched Bill do it and I laughed the whole time. And I'm like, (laughs) yes, it means that even though Matt's gone, we still get banter in the show notes. So I was very much appreciative of it. Yeah, we still get trolling even with Bill, which is good. That means Bill fits right in. Exactly. The Discover works. It works fine, but it's extremely slow. And I don't know why, why it's so much slower there than it is like an OpenSUSE. It's not for the performance of the machine because... That Steam Deck is actually the most performant machine I have, even more than my Commodore 64 Imposter. It has substantially more processing power, and it's almost twice as much as my laptop, just in raw CPU performance. So it's a really great machine. I think maybe I should start editing my Linux Saloon episodes on the Steam Deck somehow and not use my computer because I can probably render it in half the time. So I have a challenge for you then. Yes. I think if you're going to do that, then you have to do the full SteamOS experience and do it with only the thumbsticks and the buttons. No keyboard, no mouse. (laughs) That I would want to see. Is the challenge accepted? Oh, man. I don't want to throw my Steam Deck. I think (laughs) we'll try it. So I'll have to set up Anti-Micro X. Have you seen that application? Which I already have set up in there to basically do the mouse movements. It would be really slow and cumbersome to do without a keyboard because I use a lot of hotkeys. Mm -hmm. It could definitely be done, but it would probably take me a week to get the one episode done. Tell you what, Bill, I will try it and I will video myself doing it and I will bleep out any colorful metaphors that might come out and then publish that. Fantastic. So we'll get a 30 second clip of 
you cheering when it's done. Pretty much. I like it. Now, Wendy, I have an idea. <laughs> yes. I think there should be a poll put up to see how long the Steam Deck that Nate has stays with its current OS before it gets wiped out for OpenSUSE. I absolutely love this idea. He's already beaten what Matt and I said it would be. I said, like, within 24 hours... Matt said almost instantly as soon as it came out of the box. So way to go, Valve, when it comes to putting together a platform that Nate is really liking with all of the buttons working properly. I'm really curious now how much longer it's going to last or how much time Nate is now going to be spending into this rabbit hole of how can I get OpenSUSE to work just the exact same as this version of Arches on the Steam Deck. Really, it would make more sense. This is my opinion. It would have made more sense if Valve worked with SUSE and the open build service and open QA and all that stuff for building the operating system interface, in my mind, it would have made more sense because they had all those tools right there available to them. Obviously, they didn't do it because they have more than two nickels to rub between their fingers. So they did what they did, but they really did an excellent job. I can't state it enough. They really did an excellent job on the Steam Deck, the user experience, user interface, all that stuff is amazing how good they just made the whole thing just run together. So they even took an account. And Steam, you can add other titles into Steam. They can add like non-Steam titles. They made that process really easy by adding a menu item. So if you add like a flat pack game like Xenotic or Super Tux or something like that, all you have to do is do the right click on there and say add to Steam and then add it to your Steam library. They thought about all these different little things quite well. And I'm very impressed. I truly am. So Bill, I'm trying not to take a vacation from life by playing on my Steam Deck all day long. But it sounds like you are on a vacation. Is this true? I am on a vacation. This week, I just happened to be out in eastern Massachusetts, visiting some family and taking some neat excursions. And vacation is a great way to avoid burnout. It's so important that you take your vacations. For those of you that follow the show, uh, some of you might know that I do some work for schools. And before the summer season kicks off, I like to take a week off and kind of regroup and relax and refresh myself before I go into parts unknown until the end of summer. I got to do some really cool stuff so far. I went out on a whale watch, went out on a seal cruise. I'm going to be taking a nice train ride. We'll go out on another whale watch, visit some family tomorrow, and overall just enjoy the nice weather outside before it's too hot. Hang out at the ocean for a bit. Is summertime your busiest time of year? Summertime is definitely my busiest time of the year because once the students and teachers leave the schools, myself and my team go in. We do everything from clean out computers, Chromebooks, install new networks, new servers, wireless access points, whatever is asked of us for the summer. And unfortunately, one of the things I am not able to do in my job is ask the kids to come back a week late because we weren't done. Now, as much as the kids would like that, the administration, the teachers, and the parents have all agreed that would be a really bad idea. So we're forbidden from asking the kids to come back a week late, which means we have to finish everything we need to in the time we're allotted. Is it enough time? That's a good question, Nate. Is it enough time? That depends on some things that are within our control and sometimes things that are out of our control. Things that are within our control are the amount of hours and the type of work we put in and things that are out of our control are building maintenance. You know, is the building available to enter? Is the school having construction done? Are they having electrical upgrades? And what we do is we just adjust our project list as we go. 
And I try to set realistic expectations with my team that we might not be able to finish all of this. And you know what? That's okay. We'll talk regularly and we'll communicate and we'll work together as a team to figure out what we can and can't do. You know, maybe there are some things that can be done over winter break, or maybe there are some things that we just won't get to this year. Sometimes you have to be okay with that wherein you won't finish everything that you set out to do. The things that have to be done before the students get back, is it like with individual computers that have to be prepared or is it bits of software that has to be rolled out ahead of time? Or what's something that might be difficult to finish before the school year starts back up? Before the pandemic in a galaxy far away. Far, far away. (laughs) Time long past. The time that has long since left us, there were these areas called computer labs. And they were these spaces where students would sit together. I remember those. Yeah, me too. I had one when I was a kid. You'd sit in a room with other people that all used monolithic computers. Like an Apple IIc or E. Or maybe you might have had pet computers in your day, huh? Huh? (laughs) We, in my day, actually had all Macs growing up. Oh. We were an all Apple family. You're a fancy school. For the most part, my family is still all Apple, but we're going back to like the Mac Classic, the Mac 2, and other Stone Age era type of computing. But everybody has a Chromebook now that gets sent home with them. We do need to collect them over the summer, wipe them out, inventory them, make sure there's nothing broken. So if it is broken, the Parts are replaced. Most of these Chromebooks are actually end-user serviceable, which is really nice. So right to repair, believe it or not, is built into a fair number of Chromebooks. Who makes them? You can get so many different makes and models of Chromebooks out in the market. The schools that I work with generally float between HP, Dell, or Lenovo. And it really kind of all depends on what's available right now because supply chain restrictions are a little tough. That has to get done. Another thing that would have to get done is any major network overhauls. And what does that mean? So at home, you guys might have a router or you might have a switch, you know, where you plug different computers into. Multiply that on a scale of, let's say, 75 wireless access points and 20 switches and two firewalls. You want to get all that reconfigured and reinstalled, documented, nice, neat, clean, tidied up before the students come back because if they don't have a network or they don't have internet, there's not going to be a lot of learning that goes on and you're going to have a lot of people have upset with you. So that's generally the first thing that we'll tackle after the fiscal year starts, which is usually July 1st. What I'm curious about is not a whole lot of learning can happen without a working network. Is a lot of the stuff just pushed online now or is it just that requires some sort of online access? If there was internet outage, How would learning proceed in the schools? So one thing I always tell my administrators to do is have some sort of technology disaster plan in place, meaning you have a catastrophic network failure and you're going to be offline for the day. How will you prepare your teachers and students so that they continue to learn in their classroom? That's not an easy question to answer because so much curriculum depends on internet connectivity or some sort of technology device. The Chromebook is the cheap, easy, and ubiquitous solution, but unfortunately it does require an internet connection to interact in real time with the system. Now that's not to say a student can't use the device offline. They can certainly create content offline, and when the internet becomes available, synchronize it. I happen to work in an area where Not everybody has high-speed internet at home, and so that becomes a challenge. 
And I think another reason why you see so much curriculum and lesson plans moved online, and especially with Chrome, is because if you go back to when I was working in schools 10 years ago as an in-house person, one of the problems that we had was when teachers would assign a student an assignment that required a specific piece of software or even Microsoft Office, and the student would say, well, I don't have a computer at home that runs Microsoft Office. How should I do this? And that question really wasn't answered directly. That's where the Chromebook sort of came in and said, well, you don't have to worry about that. You're going to have a device and a cloud solution that integrate together where you can use the device offline to create your assignment or your spreadsheet. And then when you bring it to school, it will upload it. Or if you have internet somewhere available, it will upload then. I think it's helped standardize things. And I also think it's helped students be prepared for their own future in higher education or in the workforce. Lots of really cool stuff going on in there. I hope you get to enjoy this last little bit of time that you have to relax, wind down before you're in this jungle of getting schools ready to go. There has been a lot of seafood in my diet over this vacation, meaning I see food and I eat it. There's lots <laughs> of little ice cream shops where I am currently. And one of those little ice cream shops actually does sell a seafood-based ice cream. And although I have not partaken in that, that's just a little too far outside the box for me. I do know of people that have eaten the lobster ice cream, and it's kind of a novelty item that you go there once and say, well, I did it, and that was fun, and I'm not going to do that again. It'd be like, give me the taste tester spoon, and then I'm good to go. I don't know that I would want to eat an entire dish of lobster ice cream. Tell me they grind up the lobster tails, the shells, and that's what they use to make the ice cream. So tell me something cool like that. No, they actually use real chunks of lobster that you can see in the ice cream, and from what I understand, it has a very buttery taste to it. Interesting. That doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. I would definitely try that for sure. My wife is a huge fan of coffee ice cream. Favorite kind of coffee ice cream comes from this particular ice cream shop. And they also have incredible chocolates and candies. So I happen to have a box of different types of chocolates and candies sitting on the table nearby for me to snack on whenever I am feeling that urge. That sounds like a veritable heaven. Total immersion in your vacation. Absolutely. And I have even gone so far as not checking my phone, email, really doing anything technology related, other than, of course, being here on this awesome show while I've been on vacation. Because for me, if I don't disengage somehow... I will feel compelled to check all of my work devices constantly. And that's not really a vacation. That's right. what leads to burnout and frustration or other nasty things that can happen to your mind. It was a super fun live stream that we got to have. And so I wasn't actually planning on joining the gameplay during the live stream, but Ryan talked me into it and me... Michael, Ryan, Jill, and Nate got on there for a little bit. Wasn't there one more? There was a total of six of us. Oh, of course, Matt. Goodness sakes. How could I forget Matt? Yes, Matt was there too, and we were all playing. Easy to forget. Right? Exactly. <laughs> we all got to play this brand new game that just dropped, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, and it was kind of a blast from the past. I didn't actually play this game in the arcade, like many of you were talking about, but I definitely remember the show, all of the characters, the way the cartoon style was done. It was so much fun playing together. And one of the coolest things about this game 
is that it is also Linux native. And as we were playing, I was like, goodness, this soundtrack is absolutely amazing. And so I went looking for it too. On the Steam page, there was pre-order some of the music. They have vinyl, if that's what you're into. CDs. Too cool. Absolutely, right? I don't actually have any way to play vinyl, but I could play a CD. And then they've got it on digital platforms all over the place. So if this was a game that you guys enjoyed, I would definitely go check it out. It was so much fun to get to hang out with everybody for a while. Matt was doing games in like these two-hour blocks. And by the time that I jumped in, it was a half hour into this two-hour game block. So I figured we were going to be done at what? It was like nine my time that would have been the end of that two hour block but no in this case ryan was running the show we ended up playing the game all the way through to the very end ended up having to play the last scene twice the big boss battle twice because we didn't make it through the first time we just barely squeaked by the second time but yeah, we ended up playing way longer than I had planned on us playing, but it was a ton of fun. Definitely go check it out. I don't think any of the live streams got to stay up on the Tux Digital channel. We had somebody in the chat that was posting a lot of inappropriate material, and so it just had to be taken down, unfortunately. But it would be so awesome if we could have shared at least some of that with the rest of you for a while. But don't worry. We'll be playing Among Us together. As soon as I have all of those details, I will let you know so you can be there for Among Us and the links to the game and the music are definitely in the show description. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game was more fun than I remember that it was in the arcade. I think obviously the game has had some time to mature, I guess, or, or the gameplay has. And I had just so much fun playing that game with all of you. It was fun to play with Jill and, of course, you, Wendy, Ryan, Michael. Thank you. And I guess, <laughs> I guess Matt, too. Music was just so much fun. I truly enjoyed the whole experience. I've actually since started playing it again, just a little bit here and there. It's a lot of fun, even by yourself. Not as much fun by yourself, but it's still such a fun experience. I had to keep the audio low because of the way my setup was. I wasn't in my studio. I was in the house and had kids running around, so I had to keep the microphone off for the most part. I highly recommend the game. It was worth every penny that I paid for it. I will get continue to extract value out of that game because it was just so much fun. So great time. I'm really looking forward to playing Among Us, of course, with Matt. And he's going to enjoy it. Yes. He just doesn't realize how much fun the game is. Was the original arcade game multiplayer? Yes. We get four at a time. I distinctly remember playing that arcade game when I was a kid with a few of my friends and wasted many quarters on it and several hours beating it until the second <laughs> one came out. And then we were equally as frustrated. But I will confess on this show, I have not yet played Among Us. That's okay, Bill. It's coming up very soon. That means that you need to join us for that live stream when we play with Matt. It's going to be his first time. You might as well jump in for your first round of Among Us too. It's one of the games that we really enjoy playing as a family. And I know Nate's family enjoys playing it together. Absolutely. With all of us crazy kids at the network, I'm pretty sure you get a kick out of it. Basically, this entire network that I've looked up to forever is going to find a way to murder me. Yes. But that's the intent, <laughs> right? Brilliant. I can't wait. I'm excited. <laughs> Sneakily do it. Should I be the imposter, I will act like I'm your friend. And then when you're not paying attention and fixing some electrical wiring, 
I'm going to stab you. It's just what's going to happen. You would be the first person <laughs> I would suspect of killing me. So <laughs> if I'm I'll know right away. The one you really got to watch out for, as I understand it, is Jill, because she's just so sweet in real life. Yeah, Jill's the sneakiest. She's pretty good at getting people. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean's new app platform service. They help you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever before with their simple, intuitive interface. Simply point App Platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let them do all the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and container images. By running App Platform on their infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps the cost significantly lower than any of the other products out there. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure. As a Linux Out Loud listener and member of the DLN community, you can get started building your world-changing app with their App Platform for free, and it gets better! DigitalOcean will give you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash dln. Again, go to do.co slash dln to get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. As we were talking earlier, Bill, you mentioned that one of the reasons why you take this one-week vacation before things get really, really crazy is to avoid burnout. Now, I know this is something I've also talked, especially in some of the different OpenSUSE chat groups. Burnout comes up quite a bit. Is this a large problem overall inside not only open source, but in the tech community at large? And what do you think are other ways that people can avoid burnout? Or better yet, first give us maybe a definition of what burnout is or what you consider burnout to be first. And then we can kind of tackle some of that how to avoid it stuff. I work with a lot of different types of organizations from schools to businesses to nonprofits to manufacturing. And burnout, I think, takes shape in everybody a little bit differently. And I'll admit I've even suffered burnout. I think burnout happens a lot in the technology industry because in its nascent early on days, IT was expected to be available 24-7, 365, no matter what, as technology expanded and as we became more dependent on technology as society, that problem only got worse. No one took into consideration what are the long-term effects of a constantly connected career where you can never unplug. How do you get around that? I know for me with burnout, I don't want to be anywhere near technology. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know about it. And I think sometimes I'll spend too much time concentrating on the negative aspects of technology versus the positive aspects of technology. What does that mean? I like to tell the students that I work with, you can either use technology as a tool for good or as a weapon. You'll be the one that decides how to use that. So for me, I spend too much time looking at all the wrong parts of technology instead of all the right parts of technology. And there are some amazing projects out there that our own community members are working on to promote the greater good of technology. So gravitating towards that. 
taking a vacation and making sure that when you were on vacation, if you can do so, leave your phone away from you somewhere. Try not to turn on your laptop. If you have a team of people behind you, and I'm very lucky that I do, trust that things will be done in your absence so that you're not sitting there glued to your phone. And if you're glued to your phone in your vacation and you're playing games and that's your thing, fantastic. But like for me, if I was glued to my phone the whole time that I'm on vacation, I would have missed seeing a baby whale pop up next to the boat no more than 15 feet away and getting that on camera, which was really, really fun. So I think to avoid burnout, it's important that maybe find a hobby that doesn't involve technology so that there's some balance in there. Understanding that you're not going to be able to finish everything every day all the time and that it's okay to have some projects pending for tomorrow is another great way to avoid burnout. And also just even talking about it with your coworkers, your friends, your family, people that you trust and just kind of doing a check-in and saying, how am I feeling right now? Am I feeling normal? Am I feeling positive? Am I feeling motivated? Or am I just feeling like I'm stuck in a rut constantly? Ensuring that you're kind of finding ways to step aside from those feelings of being overwhelmed from technology. You know, when I'm eyeball deep in all things technology, how sometimes you just have to like, just get away from it. It's not because I don't like technology, but it's a little bit like eating ice cream. And I don't mean that lobster butter ice cream that you're talking about. I mean like chocolate ice cream with cookies and brownies in it and such with, you know, some fudge and stuff like that, where you may really enjoy it and really love it. But there comes a point when it just becomes too much and it was overwhelming. It like becomes a kind of a noise. You can't even look at a screen or whatever. I do think that burnout is something that can actually happen more than just the technology field too. It's kind of the whole idea is, uh, you know, everything in moderation, I suppose. Again, I love technology, especially, you know, Linuxy and OpenSUSE things. There are times when it can become a stress, I think. And sometimes it can be hard to manage that bit of stress around technology. You know, especially if things like just start to act a little wonky and you have to get a job done or whatever. And then you got nasty grams coming your way because you didn't get that job done. I can definitely see and understand it's a problem. But sometimes like, how do you manage that stress when you can't get away from it to prevent the burnout from becoming something more serious. What I do is I always tell myself that no matter what is a light at the end of the tunnel, there is an end for every project. There will come a time and a day where that particular task is completed. And yeah, there are days when you don't get away from it. You get that email that comes in at 4.55. Hey, can you get this done before the end of the day? And 4.55. <laughs> I'd like to think most of the people that work in the technology field are nice and will say, sure, I'll find a way to get that done. When I hire new people, I tell them that working in managed services or consulting is kind of like being a firefighter and a chef at the same time. You're always putting out fires and dealing with emergencies, but at the same time, you have to find a way to think outside the box and custom create solutions for people. Just like when someone goes to a restaurant and they say, well, I'd like this particular meal, but I need this modified, this modified, this taken out. Can I get a side of this? And I want you to put sprinkles on top of my cheeseburger. I think part of that combination of being a firefighter and a chef. We had me at sprinkles. Oh, that's why I said sprinkles. I had, I'll confess, I had chocolate ice cream and chocolate sprinkles last night. So, and that's how I <laughs> avoided burnout. I ate ice cream. Anyway, when you're in that moment and your pulse goes up and you start to sweat, however you find that light at the end of the tunnel. For me, I just visualize it. I see that dark tunnel. I see the light at the end of it. And as the clock goes on, I force myself to think of that light at the end of the tunnel getting bigger and bigger and bigger and myself being closer to that. 
Sometimes that requires me to step away from my project for 15, 20 minutes, do something a little different, gather my thoughts, and then come back to it with a second win. There are a lot of different ways to work through that. Finding what that is is super important. So what do you do when that light at the end of the tunnel is not a light, but it's actually a train coming your way? I hop on board and I see where it goes. Nate, you worked in a realm of technology. It wasn't the same form of technology, but you were using CAD software in order to build parts, put things together. Is this something that you also experienced in that realm or was it easier for you to disconnect when you left work? The trouble I would have when I would leave work is the mechanical problem solving wouldn't actually leave my mind. And so I would have it constantly just churning away in my head. I'm reimagining the problem, reimagining the problem, a solution for the problem and so forth. So for me, sometimes when I say that train coming at you, when after working on a mechanical problem for you know days, sometimes weeks, and constantly tweaking it, trying to get a solution for it through the churning process of designing, testing, and designing and testing and so forth, sometimes you had to like throw everything out and then start from scratch because none of that was going to work. And it's really frustrating and can cause like, it's a form of burnout, extreme level of frustration. And my solution, kind of like yours, Bill, I would get away for about 15 minutes. And, and what I would do is I would go into like the thermal lab and just start knocking out some handstand push-ups, get all the blood in my head. Because once I inverted myself, I'd feel better. But then I'd go back to the problem. You know, I'd have a, maybe a fresh take on it. Sometimes it'd be like meetings with engineers and other designers and try and you know, work out this problem. Like I don't have a solution for this problem. It's fine when that happens every once in a while. When you run into that problem, it just kind of continues to be an issue though. I mean, now I don't work there anymore, but there were many times in, throughout my career being a designer working for corporate America when I'm like, I want out. This problem or these uh, series of problems, I need a vacation from this. And sometimes it'd be hard to, to even get away from it because it just keeps churning in your head. That can happen. Yeah, that seems to be a consistent problem with some of this stuff is because you can't just leave work at work. I know when I've run into different technical difficulties there was one time I was trying to get my parents' printer to work. You know, I'd switched my mom recently over to Linux and I wasn't able to get this to work. And I literally could not sleep until I got it fixed. A job like that where you're constantly dealing with those problems, I'm one of those personalities where that may not work very well. I've experienced burnout in the realm of photography. Like, I love taking pictures. I love that creative process. But as you mentioned earlier, Nate, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the Linux world, in the open source world, in the networking world. It can be just about any other job that you've got. And I know I reached a point when I was doing stuff for a particular food client where it really wasn't fun anymore. This wasn't this great creative process and I was having fun doing it. And that makes every single aspect of getting that job finished, every single task so much more difficult. And it's great that you have found some different ways, Bill, where you can kind of step away, refresh yourself. It sounds like you'd found some really good tips and tricks when you were in that realm, Nate, where you could be like, okay, I can take this time, get some more blood flowing, get ready to tackle this again. Lots of stuff to consider. Part of what I will do as well is engage in hobbies that are not technology driven. So some of the non-technology stuff that I do is barbecue. That's just food, a grill, and a human being. It's all analog for now. I also help foster dogs, and I have a couple of dogs of my own. The last time I checked, none of my dogs have embedded technology. I intend to keep it that way. 
being able to <laughs> take a dog for a walk is a great analog way to unplug myself from technology for however long I'm out there with them. Yeah, we like to go camping. And the place that we go camping, phones don't work. You literally have no internet connection. And I know I've talked to other people and they're like, oh, I can't go without internet connection. But that's one thing where I guarantee we get to hang out as a family. We get to experiencing together. Nobody's on their phones. I'm not getting messages coming in about what's going on with this project. What do we need to do here? Everybody is disconnected. We're together as a family and enjoying some of the things that we like to do outside. Taking your laptops and having a small LAN party inside of your tent is a bad idea. Could you imagine doing a LAN party? You have no internet, so you just saw like kind of a <laughs> hodgepodge ad hoc network and then you're playing games with each other because you have plugged in or whatever wireless Wi-Fi in into just an isolated air-gapped network. Actually, that sounds like fun. Yeah, that actually does <laughs> sound like quite a bit of fun. Yeah, they have problems with it and things aren't connecting and then... Right. There's where the <laughs> issue is. I love the idea. Yeah, I do too. Some things that I would do to like try and control the burnout, besides just getting away, I found, at least for me, and I, I don't know how it is for you, whatever problem it is, if I start like kind of break the problem back down prioritize specific issues of the problem, whatever that problem might be, if it's a, you know, whatever, I'm thinking of a mechanical system right now, and identify what things you know that you can solve within that, then re-move forward from there until you get to another failure point, and then, you know, wind it back and come back forward. For me anyway, when I have achieved that burnout phase or that burnout point, how to re-engage the problems. Because sometimes you just can't take a vacation. Like, oh, I'm just going to walk away and take a vacation. You can't do that. But I think that also being proactive like you, Bill, and taking that week off and getting away can help you to be able to keep control of the things that can cause burnout. I do the same thing. I'll take a project or a problem and I'll break it down into smaller parts. Either write them down on a whiteboard or even in a simple text editor and just attach numbers to them. Say, this one needs to be done now. This one doesn't need to be done now. And sometimes even reaching out to the person you're working with and saying, hey, is it okay if I get to this tomorrow or next week? I should have a lot on my plate right now. Would that be fine? And sometimes it's yes and sometimes it's no, but it never hurts to ask. I think it's also important for me anyway. I am no social butterfly, but at least when I was working for corporate America, sometimes it was good for me to leave the cubicles, where I got the name Cubicle Nate, leave the cubicles go into the machine shop area and talk to the machinists for me because they approach problems very differently than I would. And just sometimes talking out the problem would help me to deal with the burnout or to like snap back from that burnout when you just couldn't get away from it. The other thing that, that concerns me is, so in the open source world where a lot of us do this all voluntarily, write articles, update wikis, package, write applications, you know, bug reports and everything else, and a lot of this is done free, pro bono, because for the love of it. And when it's not for the money and you don't have a boss that's telling you, do you ever feel like things in the open source world are at a greater risk of not progressing or not advancing because of how much of it is done for the love of it? That burnout can have a more serious repercussion. I think burnout is probably a big reason why open source developers call it quits. And I know from working with a number of open source developers in my career that they just want a little appreciation and gratitude for the work they've done. That's not to say they want to be paraded around downtown New York City ticker tape style, 
but many times a simple, hey, I just wanted to reach out and say thank you for this amazing product. Please keep up the great work you're doing. I use your name, your software here every day, and I think it's phenomenal, and I just wanted you to know that. I think that kind of positive reinforcement does wonders in the open source community or even outside of open source projects, even just in the closed source world I deal with. When someone works on something like that, I always try to say thank you. I really appreciate this. This is a phenomenal product or tool. Keep up the good work and let me know if there's any way that I could help you out with this. I think that matters a lot. It can be definitely overwhelming for people who are wanting to start helping too. And I know from personal experiences, where I have stepped in to help a project and there was just way too much responsibility thrown my way in the beginning and how to say no to some of those things. Like, I totally want to help, but I can't do this or this is going to take me really long or getting frustrated because you're working on something and it comes out after you've spent an entire day working on it and you're totally frustrated. You don't have the permissions to send that out to get and then you end up just leaving. So for me, that's exactly what happened because I became so frustrated and so overwhelmed that I was like, I can't do this anymore. And since that happened, I've personally been afraid to volunteer to help other projects because I don't want to be thrown back into that situation. And the project definitely didn't mean for that to happen, for me to be reaching the point where I was overwhelmed or feeling like I had no time in my day to do other things. But that's just how that rock rolled down the hill. And so where does someone like me go from there? How do you be like, okay, I want to start helping out this project again, but I guess being able to set boundaries is kind of a big deal, both in the open source world or in your other technology world. Yes, I can do this. And I know I'm really bad at setting boundaries. My husband can flat out tell you this. I volunteer to do things from co-ops all the time that I don't have time to do. And we walk away from whatever interaction. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you idiot. Why did you just do that? Or I get home and tell my husband what I volunteered for. And Magneto says something along the lines of like, oh, yeah, so when are you going to do this? When do you have time to do that? Why did you volunteer for this thing again? So boundaries is extremely important, and I'm still learning how to do that. And I know not doing that effectively has pushed me off of volunteering for certain things. I've been there where I volunteered for things that I could not fulfill or fulfill well, or I took away from other responsibilities to accomplish those tasks. And actually can make you feel really awful too when that happens. Avoid playing the game, the Plinko game of bad decisions and doing things that can cause actual like physical harm to yourself. Wendy, it's not just you that does that. I know other people in the open source community who have similar kind of personality, let's call them aberrations, perhaps, where you want to help, but you end up hurting yourself in that process. Not hurting yourself, but like, you know, causing mental stress and, and so forth because of your desire to help. And it's something you got to be careful about and not know when to say no, when to not overcommit because overcommitting isn't good for anybody, especially you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm one of those people, though I, you guys are enjoying your ice cream. When I am stressed out, I can't eat. If I've got something on my brain that isn't working right or I can't get through something, I don't stop to eat. I forget to eat. I'm not hungry. And that is where it becomes a bigger issue for me because I'm not getting enough nutrition into my body because my stress level's high and I physically cannot eat. And so that's where learning how to set boundaries in all of these instances 
is incredibly important. I think for many of us, that's a hard lesson to learn. And once you even know you need to do it, being consistent on it can be very, very difficult. Because like you said, you want to help. There is so much you want to participate in and help different projects move forward. And with kids and co-ops and other things, you want to make this work. Or sometimes, because I'm quite limited in the things that I can eat, I'm like, yeah, sure, I can totally bring this massive amount of smoked meats, which I do love to cook too. That's one of the things we share there, Bill. At least... In the smoker. I hate doing regular stuff in the kitchen, but I love using my smoker. But I'm like, yeah, I'll totally go ahead and smoke 50 pounds of pork butt and have it all shredded and ready to go for (laughs) this different activity. And some of that's out of like, well, I know if I make it, I can eat it. And then at the same time, I'm like, okay, so when are you going to have time to prep all of that? And you're not sleeping this night in order to get it done for that. So then you're going to be tired for the party. Yeah, just a whole lot of stuff that needs to be juggled with all of these different things we've got going on, both personal life, work life, open source life, wherever you want to put that. I think learning how to set those healthy boundaries for yourself also helps you gain a little bit more self-respect, teaches you that it's okay to say no sometimes when you can, if you can, but gives you a little bit of confidence that I didn't play that Plinko game of bad decisions. As you said, Nate, I learned how to put a stop to it. I learned when to stop eating ice cream, you know, when I shouldn't have overindulged myself. I didn't need to finish that last slice of pizza. I didn't need to take on that one little extra 20-minute email or that extra barbecue I couldn't make 50 pounds of pulled pork for. And you go to bed at night feeling a little bit more relaxed and not filled with, I need to get this done tomorrow. And oh my gosh, I forgot to do this. And this part's still missing. And this one isn't perfect. That boundary part of it is probably one of the most important things you can do to help falling down that rabbit hole of burnout. Except for that part about the last slice of pizza, because if you don't eat that last slice of pizza, then you got to put it in a container and then in the fridge. And it's just easier if you eat it. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Don't dirty the dish. Just eat it. Right, right. Yeah. Just go ahead and take care of it. Hey, cold pizza makes a phenomenal breakfast. Just saying. You're not wrong. Unless I make it at home, we typically don't get pizza, though I have stole toppings off of many slices of pizza, and I would definitely eat a cold. It's actually easier to strip the toppings off the pizza if it is cold. Note, Pizza Wars is a topic for a whole (laughs) separate episode. Yes, absolutely. That can be a lot of fun. Now, teams are incredibly important, especially with what you're doing, Bill. You've got people underneath you, and you're delegating that out. What is one way that you help your crew avoid burnout, and do you think that Some of those things can be translated into the open source world with different projects, especially if a project can bring on another developer or somebody else to help with notes, the manual, whatnot. One of the things that I do is I also go into the trenches with my team during the summer. Now, this summer is a little different because I am still recovering from a nasty ankle break in the winter, and I don't have the ability to run at full speed at my schools the way that I have in years past. But learning what other ways that I can contribute instead may be just as helpful. So maybe I can't be the guy racking all of the equipment, but I can be the guy that gets all the IP addresses and serial numbers and host names and enters that all into the database and makes sure that the formatting is nice, neat, clean, organized, and easy to follow is my way of contributing back when I otherwise can't. 
The other thing that we all do is we talk pretty candidly with each other about what's working, what's not working on a weekly call. What are we struggling with? What are we excelling at? What are some of the strengths and weaknesses of my team members? And as a manager, I have learned to identify what those strengths and weaknesses are, utilize those to the best of my ability. I also firmly believe in rewarding my team. So at the end of the summer, we all get together for a very nice dinner and drinks at a local restaurant, and we just sort of unwind and talk about what went well, what didn't go well, great games, sports teams, vacations we took, anything and everything. And it's sort of their time to just breathe and get rid of some of that pent-up energy. So this year, we're looking at doing some sort of other fun event in the area. And one of the suggestions that came up was a fishing trip or a night of axe throwing. And yes, that's a thing and it's controlled and you throw an axe at a target. It's apparently all the rage. I live in the West. I totally know it's a thing. Okay. So (laughs) I was at first astonished when I saw axe throwing here. And then I learned that there were leagues of people who do this and throw them at targets. I had an idea where I was going to take an old printer and attach it to a tree and we would throw axes at the printer because printers are the bane of our existence. That sounds like an amazing stress reliever I want in. I will find a way to record that if possible of us basically doing a 2022 version of the classic movie of Office Space or at least our interpretation thereof. Nice. So that was one idea we floated around. I know that I've built a good team when they can talk trash about me behind my back and I don't hear about it. And I know that sounds a little funny, but to me, it's more important that my team of guys on my school team trust each other when everybody's in the weeds and work together more so than their opinion of me. So at the end of the night last year, I raised my glass and I said, this is to all of you guys and the team that we all have together and the bond that you guys share. Because I know you talk trash about me behind my back and I just never hear about it. And they all laughed and said, we would never do such a thing. And that's how we ended our night. That's important and very (laughs) special to me that I know that I can be there to lead and orchestrate and delegate and even jump in and help rack equipment, set up Chromebooks and interface with teachers and even students when I'm asked to do so. But I don't always have to. I can avoid that burnout. I can take a vacation knowing that the time I've invested up front with them and teaching and training and building their confidence will help them in their professional career. It helps me set a boundary that I need to unplug when I go on vacation and not bother them and have them bother me. And that I'm helping my own career because I'm establishing that work-life balance to the best of my ability. Is it perfect? No. And that's part of, I think, a daily struggle is not being perfect at all the things you do and knowing you're just going to fall on your face sometimes. For me to be successful long term and to avoid the burnout, I've got to take those vacations, got to trust my team and have them trust me, have them trust each other and celebrate the end of a big project, great or small, whatever that looks like. I think that's really great advice. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I think the open source projects can take away from that is it's okay to walk away from a project for a week, two weeks, maybe a month, maybe more. And it doesn't mean that project is dead forever, especially if there's another team working on it. But it's okay to take the time away 
to get yourself back to feeling good, to being ready to contribute, and then jump back in. It's not an all or nothing kind of thing. And balancing out how much you work on a project versus how much time you take off, how much time you work on yourself as well. There's something to be said about caring for yourself, caring for your own mental health, and making sure that your head's in the right spot. It makes you a better worker, ultimately. I think this has been an absolute amazing discussion on burnout. There's been all kinds of great tips that have been thrown out around here. It's your turn to jump in. All of our listeners of Linux Out Loud, like I said, I know there are some of you out there have dealt with burnout. How did you get through that? Is it some of that that you're still dealing with? There's a great community around here. There's a great community around here that is happy to talk to you about it, kind of work through some of those things. So definitely drop us a line in the discourse form or underneath this show and let's get through some burnout, find some great tips and have an awesome open source world. I love to get out loud about our sponsor, Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to organize, share, and sync their sensitive data. If that's not enough, Bitwarden is 100% open source. They even let you self-host it if you want to. There was a dark age when I didn't have a password manager and I tried a number of different solutions. With all of these solutions, it felt like something was missing. And for me, that was the trust factor. A password manager is all about trust, and how can you trust a product when their creators don't trust their users? Bitwarden does by making the software open source and they go through audits, sharing all of that data with you. I've been using Bitwarden for a few years now, but not too long ago, I showed my dad this solution. He was shocked with how easy it was. You can do the same thing in following their excellent migration guides. Just head over to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. If you're like me though, you're going to want to give back to this amazing open source project and you can get that premium edition that starts at just $10 per year. Once again, go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for for free. I want to thank Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. I'd like to say that it's time for Game of the Week again, but no, once again, Matt's not here, so I guess you have to just deal with what we got from the 24-hour live stream. Now, the CNC progress has been underway. Last time I talked to you, there was an issue with your printer. Were you able to get that fixed, or are you still down And not all of your parts are ready to go there, Nate. As of yesterday, all the parts are now printed. And I was going to print a few extra brace pieces. And the printer went back stupid again. So that said, I'm now moving on to the next bit. I have to fix the printer though because I still need it for other things. I think I need to go to a direct drive system. Because I think all of my problems come from the fact that it's not direct drive. The Bowden tubes, they can't handle the cyclists. And so they get loose. And then I get build up. And they got to clean that build up out and so forth. I'm glad I have all the stuff printed. I'm waiting for a few other bits. I sourced out getting from a friend, getting the top built. I don't have the technology to build a totally flat surface for the top of the CNC. So when I get that, then I should be able to start putting it all together, mounting all the bits, assembling the parts over the next couple of weeks. I said this before because I didn't know what I was saying before, but I'm hoping that I can get this thing built with my friend's help and be operational. I already have another buddy who is impatiently waiting for me to get it going so he doesn't have to drive to another job shop many more miles away. So it's coming along well. Time for more upgrades on the 3D printer as a consequence. 
And I hope to have Cubicle Forge actually making things. This is an upgrade that you were talking about last week, thinking that you needed to get done. And it's for sure sounds like it's the one you're going to need to do. So are you doing the direct drive that's over the top of the print head? That's the plan. I mean, for the Ender 3, there's a direct drive extruder kit. Like a hundred bucks-ish, the one I was looking at. It's not something I want to pay for to buy, but it looks like it's probably the smartest thing for me to do at this time. Having it bind up and then a failed print, it's lost time. It's just not a good thing to have happen. I need to do something different. Otherwise, I'll continue to lose time on different things. It is incredibly frustrating when a 3D print doesn't go well. And I know you've spent hours and hours 3D printing parts for this. So yay, at least all the parts for the CNC are finally done. And you can move forward to putting that together. I can't wait to see what this looks like. I need pictures or video or something when it's all complete. Super excited about that. But you can only use a printer for so long before things wear out. And overall, even though it's not really money you wanted to spend on a project like this, it's probably going to make your 3D printing life in the long run much easier. I'm up to 207 hours and 44 minutes on the 3D printer for printing parts for this. And that doesn't include the failed prints. Wow. Good times. I've never had an issue with a 3D print not working. I have never, ever had a failed print job, but that's just because I don't have a 3D printer, so never been an issue. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. If you've never had a failed print, it's because you don't have one. <laughs> Pretty much. It's inherent to the system. So Bill, you might not have a 3D printer, but you have a Pi cluster? I do. During the pandemic, I decided that I would dive into the world of containers and Kubernetes. What I have learned along the way is that I'm basically playing whack-a-mole with different web services. You sort one problem out and then the mole comes up and you have to catch him before he hops back down the hole, before you hit him with the little foam mallet there that you have in front of you. The Pi Cluster has been a great way to learn not just about containers, but different types of open source projects, whether I've engaged with them or not. Just having that there for low power consumption and the ease of setup has been real fun. I can safely say that I haven't done a lot of work inside of Kubernetes or containers but I've certainly learned a lot about them along the way. And I've flashed the cards multiple times with different distributions, installed different things and different services to use at home, like Home Assistant. Nate, I know you're really big into that. I am. I'm really looking forward to learning more from you as we go along. I've picked your brain a few times about some of the projects that you've started. I don't know that I do it right, though. Well, is there a way to do it right? I think there's many ways to do it right. So I'm finding the right way that works for me to learn about the stuff that I need to learn about my own career path. Now, you say you have a cluster. So these are multiple pies that are networked together that act as one? That's the goal. I haven't quite gotten there yet. I have four pies that all act independently of one another right now that run different container services. They're all plugged into their own kind of isolated network, my home lab. And I can talk to the services on the Raspberry Pis, but they're not allowed to talk back into my trusted network. And that took a little bit of setup, but that's what I do for a living. So it just kind of comes second nature to me. So I'd love to get Home Assistant working with a container and maybe something like Jellyfin or a simple WordPress site. I know there's a whole ton of projects out there available to read about and to try out and to learn about. 
and I just need to keep reading and experimenting and having fun with them. I mean, it sounds like fun. I'm all for that sort of fun, even if there's some whack-a-mole involved in the fun. I did used to put quarters in machine to play whack-a-mole. So it's kind of like the arcade all over again, except not. I don't even know why I said that. I love arcades, <laughs> so I totally get that. To be fair, you've got all kinds of tech around there, Nate, that is retro style or based on something retro, retro game. So it just fits in there quite nicely when it comes to you. It's good until the moles all decide to jump out of their holes at once and attack back. Up until that point, it's lots of fun for sure. I've never had an instance where a mole has taken the hammer away from me and whacked my hand with it. But maybe that'll happen someday <laughs> in the next iteration of the game. The Mole's Revenge. Kind of like Shredder. I've enjoyed following Nate's journey with all of the stuff that he's done with the Raspberry Pis at home and the stuff he set up, got it automated. I'm really curious to see how this journey goes for you, Bill, and which ways you plan to implement it. It's one of the things that's definitely on my wish list, or at least parts of it. I find different parts of an automated home just a little bit creepy. The dehumidifier we bought was supposed to be able to connect to like a smartphone or that one thing that I'm not going to say its name because then it'll trigger in a bunch of people's houses and I don't necessarily want to get in trouble for that. <laughs> Alexa, I mean, um, and I don't necessarily <laughs> know that there's everything needs to be connected, but there's definitely parts of stuff that would be much easier if they were connected internally. And I definitely like the way that you have done that, Nate, where even if your internet doesn't work, because we have the same problem where our internet isn't always good and it needs to be able to work offline. There's a lot of really cool implementations you've done. So while you might say that you quote unquote haven't done it right, it's still a great experience to share with people like me and Bill and the rest of the community as they figure out their own path down that home automation journey. Oh, for sure. I'm working on something else right now that has me a slight bit frustrated because I don't speak Chinese, but that's for next week. Now I'm very intrigued. I've also got to have some fun with some tech around here lately. Matt sent me a couple GPUs, a Gigabyte Vega 56 and an MSI Vega 64. Now the 56, and Matt sent it to me, he goes, it may work and it may not work. So I did not become a Michael. As soon as the box showed up, actually the box showed up on Saturday, but thankfully we live in the country. And so it was still on my doorstep when we got home on Sunday, but the box came into the house. I opened the box and immediately took the side panel off of my main system. The RX 580 came out and the Vega 64 went in. There's no Michaelisms going around in here. Tech was immediately used after it showed up, which has been a lot of fun. But I really wanted to dive into the 56 because if I can get it working, it's what's going to go in that living room gaming system that we've talked about. And when I got it tore apart, the thermal pads were an absolute mess. So everything was together properly when it was, but they had reached the point that they were very crumbly. A lot of them broke apart in just the process of getting the cooler off of the card itself. And so all of that needed to be scraped and cleaned off, doing some cleaning to the PCB, and that's all ready to go. I don't have thermal pads so in order to put that back together and see if it fixed it, I have to wait on that. It's also been a chore because you're supposed to use thermal pads of the proper size. 
And this is a card that's been out for a really, really long time. So I figured it'd be super easy to figure out what the proper thermal pad height was. And it was actually a nightmare going through thread after thread after thread. People even asking the exact same question I had and not getting an answer to it. So this is one of the earlier versions of the card. It has that launch cooler on it. So it's that one fan model. Right now you can't hear the fans going because I have my fan curve turned way down, but on the day-to-day stuff, I have a pretty aggressive fan curve set up. I'm totally fine to have the fan noise going on beside me as long as my cards are staying nice and cool. Overall, that's really what is the most important thing to me. So I do have the fan curve turned down and just making sure that I've got the proper thermal pads to replace it with so that once I have the card back together, it'll be easier to determine now is it something else with the board or really was it a cooling issue because it is an older card. The thermal pads had degraded. The thermal paste was that really thick kind of nasty stuff on there that almost looks like it's dried on mud, you know, really goopy, nasty crap. Your thermal paste turned to chalk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You give it to the kids, let them ride on the sidewalk with it. That's the upshot there. That's exactly what I should have done. And I was like, oh, I can take these thermal pads and like measure them because I do have a nice pair of calipers. The problem was finding a piece big enough that I knew was an edge piece and not a compressed piece was an absolute absolute ridiculous trying to get that figured out. So I pretty well determined that I need a one millimeter and a one and a half millimeter in order to reapply the thermal pads to this one. I'm going to get extras because when I am done putting this card together, I definitely want to go through and do that to the 64. Like I said, it's also an older card. It is time for it to be Rethermal pasted, have the thermal pads replaced. And while I'm at it, since I'm doing both of those cards, I did rethermal paste my daughter's laptop here once they got the VR headset, but I didn't have any thermal pads. And I think it's time to actually replace those on there too. So I just need to get a variety of them. A lot of things need it and just spend a day going through some of the different tech, reapplying that stuff. And then, of course, there's always testing that has to come after that. It's one of the reasons not only do I not have thermal pads that I don't want to tear apart the Vega 64 right now, but I also want to compare it to the temperatures. Are they actually better after I tear it apart, rethermal paste, rethermal padded, or did it get worse? And it can get worse if those thermal pads are not the proper size and having good contact with that cooler. Well, it just sounds like quite the adventure. I think getting a couple different sizes of pads and then seeing how they fit. I don't know if you can do like a dry fit, test it, and then see which one has the right tension to it, I suppose. I've actually seen a little bit of that where they would go ahead and tighten down the card and then retake it apart and see what those contacts looked like once everything was secure. How much did it squish it down? Where was those contact points? Did everything actually make good contact? So that is a great way to kind of do I have the right pads on here? And if not, go ahead and swap them out before even firing it up. Yeah, it's a fun project nonetheless, I think. You're ending up with a card that you can have a lot of fun with ultimately. You know, putting it in your living room system, having a family gaming computer there, I think that'll be great. I don't know if you guys do like family gaming nights or whatever, but I know for me anyway, family gaming night is, I think, important for the family, for the health of the family. 
you know, as far as like, you know, not getting burned out with school, doing things like video gaming together is a great way just to have an evening, a fun evening that you guys talk about a long time. It's been a while since we do that, but it is definitely one of the things we do together. One of our past gaming adventures as a family was Sonic Team Racing, which everyone in the house, like even my youngest, all of my kids, my husband, they're all way better than me when it comes to racing. So I'm typically always last and everybody has a lot of fun making fun of mom because she is not very good when it comes to those (laughs) fine motor skill games. We've already established they are not my kind of game. But yeah, everybody has a great time. I know I'm bad at those games and it is a lot of fun. And that one's on the Xbox. It looks like on Chimera OS, the one that Matt recommended, Sonic Team Racing is one of the ones that has been not okayed, but like green-lighted as this is a game that'll play really well. So not only can we play that on the Xbox, but we could potentially play it together as a family on the living room gaming system. I bet you do well in Mario Kart. I bet I would be just as horrible. How about RC Pro-Am or Excite Bike? I'm just going to be honest with you, and I have no idea what those games are. Oh, those are old 8-bit <laughs> Nintendo Entertainment System racing games. Some of the best. I grew up with a Sega, and we started with a Sega Genesis in my house. So most of the Nintendo games, other than Mario and Duck Hunter... I probably wouldn't know just because at home we didn't have a Nintendo system and those were the other games that were available at friends' houses. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse form, drop us a line under this video, or contact us by visiting tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links in the bottom of the show description. Find more great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and The Pseudo Show, which our fantastic guest host Bill has also been on, and more at TuxDigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting TuxDigital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like this gamer-centric I paused my game to be here shirt, the one you know Matt would be wearing if he was around us right now. Except he wouldn't pause his game. You're right. He'd just continue playing <laughs> while talking to us. That's just the way Matt rolls. Right. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, the conversation eh, somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. <laughs> <laughs>